Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Join us as we listen to queer classical music from around the world, talk with composers, and explore the wonderful, diverse, and growing repertoire of LGBTQ musicians. On this month's podcast, Jacob and I interview multi-award-winning composer and instrumentalist Florence Anna Maunders. Her compositions are influenced by her identity as a trans woman and the formative experiences of her transition. As you will also hear, her music is influenced by many types of contemporary music such as dubstep and jazz. Flory is also a teacher, musician and conductor. Her work is seen as innovative, progressive and super cool and has over the past few years won many awards. As you will hear, the subjects discussed range far and wide. We hope you enjoy the interview. Uh, welcome, everyone. This month, we're talking with award-winning composer Florence Anna Maunders. I've been listening and playing Florrie's music for about two years now, and I'm sure you will hear today that her stylistic influences are wide and pulls in many genres from all over the world. Her music has been described as super cool, vibrant, and a wonderful crescendo of just outright queer orchestration, which I think is very appropriate for this podcast. Uh, in addition to her composing abilities, uh, Florrie is also a musician, conductor, teacher, and arranger. So, welcome, Florrie. Hi there, Sammy. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, no problem at all. Perhaps we'll start by just getting you to say uh, a little bit about yourself, uh, a bit of your background and musical influences. Oh, gosh, I could speak for ages about that. Um, so, um, as Sammy said in her lovely introduction, I am a composer, I write music. Um, which doesn't quite um, provide a living on its own. I also teach, I perform, I'm conducting, I'm arranging um, and writing about music. So a whole range of different activities. Um, Composing is really kind of the most essential part of what I'm doing musically though. So um, the music I'm writing is the way I express myself artistically. It's kind of like when I introduce myself to people and they say, what do you do? Then, I, you know, that's where I start. I say, I'm a composer. And then everything else is kind of secondary to that and supporting that as my main, my main thing, really. Um, I've had a bit of a journey to get here, though. Uh, I did study composition. Um, I went to the Royal Northern College of Music. That was now quite a few years ago. Uh, after I graduated, I lived for a time in Germany and uh, I worked in a number of different careers. I, I worked in um, science, I worked in um, different industries, IT, um, I trained as a teacher, uh, I did electronic music production and um, conducting and all kinds of things. I sort of avoided composing up until around 2018 and then um, I returned I returned to it and had this big kind of dramatic change in my life. It, it's kind of interesting. I think everybody we've had on here, one of the first things they say is that 
I'm a composer, but it doesn't make enough money to be a composer. <laughs> I, I think that's I think that's kind of goes with the with the uh, with the territory, really. And I should also say that that also is true of any country too. It's not even like we have all the UK people saying that they can't make it a full time living as a composer. Unfortunately, it is uh, every country. Yeah, there's very few people who can make a living entirely from from writing music. But I don't think it's a particularly modern phenomenon. If you look at some of the the so-called great classical musicians of the past, they were all performing, they were teaching, they were writing books, they were conducting. Um, and some of them also had very wealthy patrons. So somebody yes. like, like Tchaikovsky, although he was gay, had a whole string of wealthy women throwing jewelry at him and um, <laughs> saying, oh, you can come and stay in our summer house rent free for a whole season and stuff like that. So um, yeah. that's the kind of support we all need, really, isn't it? A rich patron. <laughs> we should all be yeah. so lucky. Yeah. Yes. If anybody's <laughs> listening in. <laughs> yes, yes. Please, please. We need the money. Yes, yes. yes. Um, so I don't know where to go after that one. It's kind of, kind of, we got an advert for out now. Um, yes. So, um, you, you know, obviously you had a change in life experience, which is sort of maybe prompted this change back into composition, I guess, and, and sort of made a, a distinct turn in your, in your career. Yeah, I would say that these things are related. Yeah. So there was a long period, I guess, of inwardly looking and coming to a decision about what I wanted to be and who I wanted to be. And I think those things are related. Um, exactly how they're related, I don't know, it's hard to say, isn't it? It's complex. But um, yeah, there's that sort of process of, of self-discovery, which sounds like awfully new age and cliche, doesn't it, in inner meditation. <laughs> but it really is a thing that I was coming up to a point in my life and I was thinking, is this who I want to be for the rest of my life? Is this what I want to be doing for the rest of my life? Um, and the answer was no. Um, so I bit the bullet and made some changes, basically. I think that's quite a, I mean, is it common? It, it's a common theme, I think, in queer community, uh, I would say, to, to actually internally look and see who you are and who you want to be. It's, it seems to be a, you know, a relatively common thing to at least everyone we've talked to, I guess. And personally yeah. as well, I think. I mean, obviously the queer experience is massively diverse. It's a kaleidoscope of different experiences, but there is a common theme. Everybody has a coming out story. Everybody has this moment of realization. Everybody has a point where they made conscious decisions to change their life in some way. Um, and I think that is like the one constant across the whole queer community because everybody's stories are so different and so diverse. Um, but that is like the one shared thing, which I suppose is something maybe that a lot of people outside of um, queerdom have not really, not necessarily experienced. I mean, the act of choosing your own identity and making a deliberate choice is, it's very liberating, isn't it? And very, what's the word I want to use? It's very scary, <laughs> I found. Yeah. I mean, it's liberating and scary and, fantastic and worrisome it's it's a for me it's quite a tension between the two things about getting it yeah. right it's one of those things that's kind of scary until you do it and then it's never as bad as you thought it was going to be yeah you can frighten yourself a lot yeah. for many years many, many but you're years, right i think yeah. there's a, there's a, a large element when we when we talk about uh like 
identity and life and, and being the human that everybody is and how it translates into what it is you do. And we, we were talking about music, but I think there's so much um, given trajectory in most people's lives as musicians or composers that they don't have to question anything. They go to school, they do a composition degree, they write the music that they thought they were going to write. There's no internal reflection, there's no uh, inward look, there's no uh, thinking about what composing means to them or does for them or how they write or why they write or anything, or at least on some level. But I think you're right that there's a an inherent like looking inward in the queer experience that just asks deeper questions about everything, like anything you're doing. Yeah. I mean, there are some composers, I don't want to mention anyone's names here, who do seem to have at some young age decided what kind of music they want to write and they're going to keep writing for their, their entire career and they're very successful doing that. Mm-hmm. And um, I suppose they're popular for the same reason that branded products are popular. You know exactly what you're going to get when you open the packets. Um, you know, and that that is a perfectly reasonable way to to make a living as an artist. Um, though these guys are also still performing and recording and touring and teaching um, on the whole. But uh, yeah, that self searching looking inwards is is definitely something which a lot of composers are doing. Though I think it's probably a difference between composing music and just writing music. Mm-hmm. which is very difficult to define, but there's something about the way in which you approach approach the sort of assembling of sounds. Um, if you're doing it in a kind of creative experimental way, or are you just kind of recreating something that's been done before? I suppose it's the difference between like um, an artist who's trying to explore new ways of painting and somebody who's basically um, doing those wonderful reproductions of old masters. Mm. You know, painting by numbers almost. Yeah, fantastic painting technique, beautiful mm. painting technique, great technical skills. But is this really art or are they just recreating? I don't know. That's a really deep philosophical question. Yes. We, li- we like to start with deep philosophical questions. It's a good place. But, <laughs> but, but you're kind of right because I think one of the things that, that I found, not being a musician, but, but talking to musicians here, is this... Um, um, this way of composing, um, which is quite, what's the word, right? Challenging. I mean, it, it, it's, it's the music that I, I hear from composers like yourself and that challenges you to be thinking about yourself and challenges about the world around you, which is a lot different from the people doing music by numbers or, or, or copying music or sounding like Bach or, or making out something like that. And I think that for me is, is quite a difference is being made to think about the music. Yeah, and there's really kind of two trends in that as well, because some composers are writing music to make us think about things beyond the music. So the music kind of speaks to us about the human experience or emotions or historical or current events or um, political opinions. You know, the music's got some kind of message to deliver. And some people are writing kind of like absolute music. It's music which is about sounds. It is about the way in which different frequencies are being combined on different instruments. Um, and both of those can be quite difficult for people to access sometimes without sort of some extra musical explanation. So uh, something maybe I try to avoid in my music that, you know, it should be able to be understood without a, a lecture beforehand. 
no cliff's notes you know yeah yeah i i mean it's kind of interesting because i think um uh when i talk to people who are listeners of music you know you find there are what i would call superficial listeners um, um they kind of have it in the background Mm-hmm. Um, and then there seem to be listeners that really think about, you know, when they hear the music, they want to try and understand it and they want to try and get to behind where the, the composer's coming from. So, so I kind of think there's like almost two, two different classes of people you're trying to appeal to, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not sure who I'm writing to appeal to in terms of listeners. I think generally my first listeners are always um, the musicians themselves. They're kind of the, the target audience of my piece of the people that are going to play it. I mean, they're the ones that are going to spend most time with it, rehearsing and recording and performing it over and over. Um, and if people like to listen to it too, that's kind of a bonus, I guess. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think the main thing is whether or not it, it actually makes people feel things or makes people react to it in a way. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can react, you can say, I don't like that piece of music, but but at least that's a reaction, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. I mean, there's really kind of like two completely different flavors of reaction you get as a composer when you're talking about your music. Um, and it really depends how closely someone's been listening to it, I suppose, and what kind of listener they are. Like you say, some people are more superficial listeners. So the reaction I hate is when I talk, somebody talks to me about, about some music that I've written and they've heard a performance or listen to recording, whatever, they come and talk to me. And instead of talking about the music, they talk to me about themselves and their reaction. It's just like, I've come to talk to you about your music. And then they actually speak about themselves. And I liked it. It made me feel this. And, you know, they put themselves at the centre of that musical experience, which is really interesting. And then the other kind of listener... I'm just going to change my notes here for the music later. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other kind of listener will actually kind of um, come and ask me some questions about about the music. and, And they'll talk about rather than their opinion, they'll talk about actually what they heard. It's like, you were really listening, weren't you? And that kind is so, so rare. But when somebody comes to speak to me about the music and, and they, they talk about like the actual timbres and the textures and the combinations of sounds and the rhythms and the influences, so I'm, I'm kind of, what's the word, a bit struck by the, the attention they must have been paying. Yeah, they were really listening to my music. I, I'm kind of flattered by that. Um, and they've come to talk to me actually about the music, but that's super real. People never do that. When they do, it's well, really I think remarkable. You're going to get, I think you're going to get both reactions here. I'm going to do the, this is how I felt, and, and I'll leave it over to Jacob to talk about the, the timbres and all that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. So you say, I mean, while we transition into talking about your music and then listening to some things, I always, I play a little game with my uh, self when I listen to someone who I, who I don't know at all. And I try and guess their home instrument and I try and guess um, where they write from, like what, what instrumental space or how they sit down and write. Like, and so I have uh, two questions for you to start before we start listening. Uh, you are a percussionist. Yes. Oh, I want you to guess really. I think I don't want to spoil your game. i feel there's like an intense rhythmic uh drive it's so rhythm forward towards anything and not that percussionists don't have to write from like a rhythmic forward place obviously um but in all the percussionists that i've worked with it has held true that they have a uh, like a much deeper understanding of uh 
uh, meter and rhythm and how things can groove and how things can settle into a vibe. Um, and so that's my first question. Is uh, yeah, I, I am a percussionist, yeah. Um, Fantastic. And it's great that some percussion gigs are starting to happen again. Oh, thank God. Yeah. It's good to be I... at the back of the orchestra driving. <laughs> yeah, pushing everybody from the back is always is always Absolutely. the best place. I uh I always value like very strong percussionists. It's always so important. Um, and then my second question is, as we as we start to listen to things, and I don't remember which one we had agreed we were going to listen to first. Um, Mikhail uh, Venerate. We were going to listen to yeah, first. let's do that one first. Okay. I I always have to ask people how they write as a composer. Like, do you sit with a uh, blank score? and from your brain write, or do you on a keyboard uh, jam out and find uh, the the groove and the soundscape and the like tonal center or whatever you wanna figure out? Or do you like sit down and play with your home instrument? Do you play on melodics? Like what what's your process as you write? Oh, um, I tend to um, have a, a long, long sulk and sit and stew and think about things and kind of formulate the music in my head so i've kind of like put it all together um and then i splurge so methyl phenidate was written basically in a day um i you know sat down at my desk and wrote the piece in a day but the piece already existed before i wrote it down does that make sense so mm -hmm. i kind of i conceived of, of what i was going to do and then it was just that the process of writing it out, which is one of the most frustrating things. Writing fast music is such a slow process. Mm. The mm -hmm. faster and more more active the music is, the longer it takes to actually get it down on the page. So, like, if you're ever listening to to music that's really really exciting, engaging with loads of things going on, then the process of writing it was really slow and tedious with very little going. <laughs> and absolutely the way around, when you're listening to super slow music, which seems very static, that music was written in an absolute whirlwind. Writing those <laughs> long notes takes moments. You're lifting the veil. You're, you're showing yeah, everybody all yeah. the, the hidden this tricks is, that people this... think they have hidden. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's kind of interesting for me as a, as a, as a not musically talented person that, that you know, that for me the pro problem has always been that if I think of something interesting and exciting I never want to write it down afterwards because I've thought of it and it's gone through my mind and I can it, it's been realized and then the last thing I want to do is to actually put it on paper yeah I think it's one of the skills you learn as a composer is how to kind of take a mental snapshot uh, of a situation or a feeling or a mood or an idea you've had and, and just kind of hold it in your head and look at it from different angles and gradually build stuff onto it. I mean, I don't know if you've ever done one of those kind of, uh, they call them cognitive ability tests where you have to imagine like there's a, a 3D shape which has been unfolded mm -hmm. and you have to mentally fold it up in your head and then, and then say, you know, oh, the side with the three dots is next to the side with three diagonal stripes or something. So basically composing your heads like that, you're, you're you're taking something and flattening it out and seeing how all the parts are put together. And then you kind of fold it in your head and put it all together without, you know, forgetting which bit goes where. <laughs> <laughs> which makes it sound like some kind of amazing innate skill, but actually it's something yeah. which takes just years to develop. It's like anything else. It's like these chess players that can imagine, you know, a hundred moves ahead on the chessboard. Mm. 
Sounds good. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, methyl uh, phenidate. Um, do you want to say something, Flory, about uh, the title and the, the meaning behind it a little bit before we hear it? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, the piece is, is called methyl phenidate, which is a uh, medication which is commonly used for treating ADHD. Um, it's a... Uh, uh, a very exciting piece. It's got a, a lot of rhythmic drive. Um, it was originally a, a commission for a trio in um, in America um, who approached me to write a piece for them. And um, it's got a, a very bright and loud um, trio of trumpets, alto saxophone and clarinet. And um, the piece is basically a, a sort of a uh, frantic blast of, of sounds all tumbling over each other. So it's kind of like this initial burst of energy and then um, all these rapid rhythmic patterns. And um, then in the middle, there's some sort of flowy bits before it returns to the, the frantic stuff to finish off. Um, it's only about three minutes of music. It goes by a, a, a quite a lick with loads of um, sort of momentum is, is the word I, I suppose I'd want to use for it so it, it doesn't kind of let up at all. A lot of the rhythmic stuff is derived from um, electronic um, dance music so particularly mm. like drum and bass though the music sounds nothing like drum and bass because if you take like a, a breakbeat rhythm um, which is sort of snare and hi-hat and, and kick drum and then put that onto instrumental stuff and give it pitched patterns then um, it doesn't sound anything like drum and bass anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, the rhythmic profiles there, it's like if you played it along with the drum beat at the same tempo, go, oh, yeah, I see how they look yeah. together. But hearing it without the drum beat, um, um, without those particular timbres of that style of music, um, you don't get really get any of that at all, but you do get these kind of really interesting um, sort of cross-beat rhythms going on. Yeah, sounds good. Well, let's hear it then. Thank <laughs> you. 
I mean, it's so it, it's interesting when you say that this was a commission specifically for a, a group that already in existence of uh, yeah. saxophone, clarinet, and, and trumpet. Uh, because my first thought was, what prompted you to bring those three together? <laughs> Given that they're all so bright and intense, like uh, you know, clarinet and saxophone and trumpet are all so um, very like timbre bright forward and it i mean it plays well into the the piece obviously uh given the the kind of chaotic frenetic energy uh behind it um but how do you find writing for that trio because it was kind of gifted to you that trio yeah i mean it's the kind of group that i love to write for really it's 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 bright it's exciting um I, I love writing for woodwinds and brass. Um, actually, I love writing for pretty much everything. But, you know, um, one of the nice things about writing for, for, for clarinet and saxophone trumpets, they're all very agile instruments. They're very incisive. Um, which is one of the great things about writing for percussion as well, is that you always get a very good attack with percussion. You never get the, the soft, sort of squidgy start into a sound. It's always, um, you know, every sound starts with this transient thump of some sort mm. um, and you can get some of that as well with with, with, um, with wind instruments you can get them to attack the notes the staccato articulation and, and so on um, and as a trio they actually work very well together it's kind of that sort of horn section you sound it's a trumpet and saxophone mm. um, you know very often we find them together there's a lot of sort of bebop stuff with these unison lines you know like Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker just like unison was tenor saxophone and and trumpet you know putting the clarinet in there too is just like an extension of that sonority they do blend really well and all three i think that the thing that maybe makes it work so nicely for a blend is they do surprisingly have a wide range in all three like they're not actually that narrow when you think of they're bright but there there is actually a low and a high end in kind of extremes on all three yeah and the clarinet is actually surprisingly kind of the base of the ensemble mm. Mm. I mean, even think like the smallest instrument is actually the, able to, to go the deepest, but the, the low notes and the clarinet really do provide a, a very satisfying low end. So there's quite a few points in this piece where the clarinet's got sort of a low rippling part with the, the trumpet and the saxophone sticking, sitting on top. And then the saxophone and the trumpet are kind of stabbing patterns in the middle register with some screaming clarinet over the top of that. <laughs> I must admit, I'm going to say something about how I felt about the piece. No, now, please do. Please so do. I, I, I mean, the thing, the thing for me, um, I, I mean, first of all, it was, it was, as you say, at the beginning, it was quite frantic piece. I mean, it was certainly the, the beginnings and end made you 
were very energetic i don't know they were almost like hyper hyper you know it felt like you were mm-hmm. you were on some drugs or something you know it made you feel kind of not that i've ever done that but it made of you feel kind of of course nobody's ever here has ever been on that but it made you kind of feel you were like really sort of you know just just wanting to burst sort of thing which was which was kind of interesting which i guess is part of part of the the, the meaning behind the, the title and the and the backstory i guess yeah yeah absolutely um but the middle bits yeah so that was kind of the interesting bit to me it, it was kind of like it, it did this sort of like you know thing bit and then suddenly it went like it was almost like you come off it you know it was almost like you'd sort of like oh gosh i'm almost exhausted of that in a way you know and it kept you moving through but it was kind of like it, it sort of brought you down and then it came back up again for me anyway and then it was like the, the frantic end again yeah i'm a big fan of this sort of repressed energy um, mm. like a cat just twitching the tip of its tail you know it's still full <laughs> of this coiled tension um, it doesn't let up in terms of the harmonic tension the music's still very rapidly moving but the music's really squashed so there's the high end is, is is in the middle and the low end is up in the middle as well so it's in a very narrow sort of range of pitches in the middle voices of the instruments and the dynamic level is, is reduced right down to almost a whisper through this middle bit so though the music's still moving very rapidly um, it doesn't have so much aggression. Yeah, um, and also the, aggression. also the music's, I've taken out a lot of the rests from the music, so it's much smoother flowing lines, but the opening bit is really, you know, it's fragmented. It's It's lots of gaps in the music, which give it a, this real percussive attack to the sounds. Um, but the middle bit is just lots of kind of long flowing. It's all legato. Yeah, which mm. which I think is for me made me feel like I was come off a plateau, as it were, off the frantic. Mm. It still moved, but it was off the frantic part. A little respite, a bit more. Yeah, a little yeah. respite again. You know, we've, we're taking a breather here, but yeah. And another way I like to achieve contrast, and I think we'll hear this in another piece as well, is um, rate of change is really really interesting because as listeners, when we hear music, we very very quickly become accustomed to repetition. Mm. Mm. A lot of a lot of music's based on repetition. We hear a sound, and we immediately hear it again. And we hear it again, and we become, you know, even the, in the strangest, most unusual music, if it's using repetition, we we feel at home. It gives us some kind of sense of uh, knowing where we are, and un, you know, we can mm. predict what's coming next based on what we've heard before. So a rapid rate of change with introducing new ideas makes the music very on edge. And when in this middle section, it settles into the same kind of musical texture for about. 45 seconds a minute or so um, without any rapid change is another reason it feels relaxed and not not going anywhere because the rate of change has basically become zero because I, I guess if you took that middle bit out and just heard it's on its own it wouldn't sound as relaxed i mean it would if it was just like on it you know if you're taking that snippet but the fact yeah. that you've had this high tension either side of it has called it made you feel like you've come down into that even though it's in itself it's still moving on Absolutely. It's like when you're painting and you put very bright colours next to um, dark black or bright white to really draw the contrast out. Yeah. Hmm. And the same is true of the other side, that if you didn't have the middle bit, that the you, you can only ingest so much energy without any respite or pause or anything before it just becomes exhausting. You need the little come down so that you can push it even further, I always find. Absolutely. I mean, you find this in all kinds of electronic dance music. You have the breakdown and the build-up and then the release 
and then the breakdown and the build-up and the release. And that, I suppose it's like a natural cycle as well, isn't it? We have the summer, autumn, winter, spring, growth and death. Mm. Um, I guess our bodies just like these kind of cycles. Mm. Mm. I must admit, when I listen to it as well, I, I mean, I kind of have quite a visual image of music when, when I hear it. I kind of have images. And, and and the one that came to mind, and you may or may not like this, is it, the, the beginning part of it actually sounded like to me it would go really well with a film like Psycho. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you know what I mean, it actually sort of had this feel of like something almost like, you know, a psychotic drive to it mm -hmm. um, at the beginning. And it was like, you know, this is, this is intense. There's something really going to happen here. There's something really, you know, terrible and it's going to drive forward and it's really going to push it and this kind of thing. And then, of course, it went down again, which released that tension. But it, that, that's my visual image and that, that may not be what you're aiming for, but it was kind of, I kind of had this, you know, like a film, something like that, a dark sort of, you know, red yeah. relentless kind of film. I mean, I do tend to compose quite intuitively. So, you know, I follow the, the way I feel it should go. So, you know, when I build up tension, I feel it should release when I, I'm in a, a spot of, you know, coming up to a, a climactic point and I feel the music should be building. You know, I just, I'd follow the intuition, intuition and let the music do what feels right. You know, I wouldn't like to listen to a piece of music myself that felt wrong. And, <laughs> and you know, yeah. I want, I want yeah. this particular emotional effect. I think, yeah. The, I'd like to say there's some kind of science behind it. Like it's, it's about the golden section ratio. Like, but, but really, it is kind of just an intuitive thing. It's like the music needs to relax a moment here, and it needs to kick forwards again here. Yeah. So, so maybe going back to how you write this, because you know we, we talked about this. So, so uh, and maybe I didn't quite get it all, but do you, so, so actually, when you start to write and you're starting mm -hmm. to put this down, starting to get this in your in your brain. Do you hear it like, okay, I know where it's going to go all the time, or do, or do you start and you go, okay, this is this, oh, now it needs to go here, now it needs to go there? Um, it's a combination of both. It's probably a bit more of the former. So I kind of, I have the overall piece in my head. But um, it's like when you're telling a story and you know, the, you know the beginning and the middle and the end, and you know all the names of the characters and the incidents happening on the way. But you know, each time you tell the story, you might phrase things slightly differently. Or, you know, and then when you tell that story again later, then you think, oh, yeah, well, I'll keep that bit in. You know, it's that sort of oral tradition, I suppose. I do a lot of storytelling. Um, uh -huh. And uh, I, I guess maybe when I'm writing music, I'm doing it the same way. I know the story, I know how it goes, but in this particular telling of it, it comes out this way. And sometimes there's like a little minor character who ends up having a bit of a cameo. It's That's time kind of fascinating, to really. Find it fascinating to see the similarity between writing a novel and, and the music. It's, I'd never really thought about that, I guess. Yeah, I think I think composing music and, and composing you know, text is very similar human activity. So when you were writing Transition One, Transmission One, excuse me, yeah. um, this was part of a it was another commission, I'm guessing. Yeah, this is with a group called the Brass Project, who are based in New York. And, and so um, they asked for uh, like a, a length of piece with a vibe. What was the commission? Well, uh, they had a, like a call for proposals. They were looking for people to work with. And um, 
I actually had a proposal for a piece which I'm, I'm still working on actually. Um, but this is kind of an interim thing because everything got postponed and knocked back because of this whole COVID thing. And they said, do you have anything that we could record with our parts separately? Um, just a little thing we could play like while we're all locked in in, in our little apartments in New York. So I wrote them a, a, an in-between piece called um, Transmission. Um, it's kind of like a multiple play on words sort of thing. So yeah, I was transmitting it to them across the Atlantic and they were transmitting it to each other. But of course, at the time, we were talking about transmission rates through the middle of COVID pandemic. Um, but the way the music's written is, is also like the transmission in, in a car, so, you know, in the gearbox. So it's got like different musical processes happening at different rates. Um, so there's one, there's one cycle, which is always 11 um, beats long which is overlaid with patterns of threes and fours, which then themselves fit into longer patterns of 11 by four, so 44 beats, which then themselves fall into longer uh, patterns of um, four or eight times that. So the whole thing falls you know, very regularly into these sort of geometrical structures. You probably don't hear that when you're listening to it, because when you listen to it, you just hear that everything kinds of falls into place exactly where you want it to. But like I say about this whole thing of repetition and building up expectations. <laughs> so I, I mean, it's subconscious. Was, yeah. I mean, this film piece for me was, was really brought out the rhythmical side of things. For me, this, this one was really the one. I mean, when I was listening to it, I, I, again, I was thinking about who, it sort of kind of reminds me of a, a brass version of something that Steve Reich might write or something like that. You know, it's, it's kind of got this sort of rhythmical, you know, pattern there, which is kind of really um, fascinating pattern. And you kind of want to keep listening to this pattern because it, yeah. it's, it's there. And, and that was kind of, that was kind of, I thought brought out your, I guess your, your percussion rhythm back backgrounds really, really sort of well for me. Yeah, I'd, I would go with that. And the music of Steve Wright's been a very big influence to me, actually, like through my, my career. I think that his, his music is great. I, I love listening to it. I love performing it. I love talking about it and playing it. It's it's great. Um, and the way that just simple interlocking patterns combine to make something really complex and interesting is is really what's going on in transmission. The, the, mm. Some of the patterns are very, very simple. There's a, a three-note motif, which is... Um, one higher note and two low notes. It's like da 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 da, and then these are chained together. Da 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 da. Like in these, um, all being passed through the um, the sextet, and then there's a sort of chorale phrase, which is um, sort of got this uneven. Um, there's a I'm trying to remember what it is. Now. It's like a nine beat note followed by a two, followed by six, followed by three, followed by one. Mm. So it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Mm. So yeah. it's just kind of it's uneven thing. So it does sound uneven when you put the two, you know, threes against eleven don't go. Mm. So you end up with notes left over. So the two patterns move in and out of sync of each other. Yeah, I mean, that, when that you have sounds enough... something like that sounds something like Steve yeah. Wright. That sounds exactly what he would sort of, I, I, I guess, and that's yeah. why I guess the similarity. Let's take, before we go on, let's take a listen to it to see if. The listeners yeah. can recognise. See if they can hear those patterns coming in and out of sync Let's, with each other. There will be a test later. Mm -hmm. 
So my question is, you you wrote this knowing that it was going to be multi-tracked, as in it wasn't a, a piece that you were expecting to be performed live, and then it ended up being multi-tracked. Um, That's right. And you have a background in electronic music, and you have a background in uh, writing for uh, instruments maybe that get uh, recorded or uh, manipulated or uh, moved around. How do you, do, do you write differently knowing that it's going to be multi-tracked or do you uh, just write it as if it was going to be a live performance and ends up being multi-tracked? Well, in this particular case, I knew it was going to be multi-tracked. So um, I made the deliberate decision that it's going to be at exactly the same tempo all the way through. So I could record it to a click track. Mm -hmm. All the parts would, 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 would be aligned. And it is a piece based on, you know, divisions of the same rhythmic cycle. So um, there's no need for that kind of... You know, when you're playing music with other people, um, very often you have this flexibility in the tempo. You listen to each other, you speed up and you slow down. Um, but this is all locked into the same the same kind of cycles. And I was very, very detailed with the dynamic shaping as well to make sure everybody would be playing, um, you know, accents and staccatos and crescendos and so on all together. So there'd be no need for that kind of like, uh, you know, the stuff you do when you're working live, you just listen to it and go, this beat needs to be emphasized. So it's all there in the score. It's very detailed score in that way. Um, 
And also it's written for you know, basically a set of very similar sounding instruments. It's all brass instruments and they're all being close mic. So balance and blend, not a problem that can all be done in post. Um, mm. Having said that, this piece has gone on to have um, a lot of legs. It's been performed all around the world multiple times, um, um, along with its, uh, its uh, sequel, Transmission 2. Um, oh. So it's probably my most popular piece. It's had like, probably um, maybe two dozen performances in the last last year or so um, here um, in Europe and in the States. So um, those are live performances. So I guess it works live as well. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it was a, for me. It was a very quite joyful and positive experience listening to it. It was kind of, kind of, it was, it was so upbeat for me to listen yeah. to it. It was, it was. I, I can, I can see why audiences would like it. I can see where people would like to play it as well because it gives you a very come out with a positive hmm. vibe from it. I guess there's not a single major chord in the whole piece, hmm. <laughs> but it's still got that very positive upbeat vibe. I don't know why. It's just got a certain. Sort of bounce to it, I guess. Sort of tigerish energy. Yeah. Well, may, maybe it is, as you say, the energy of the piece rather than the, the chord, the music, the chords you're playing, or something. You know. So. Yeah. There's a lot of minor chords for a piece that sounds so happy. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Just goes but to show. The harmony is all very jazz, jazz influenced. It's all these kind of stacked triadic chords, ninths, thirteenths, elevenths. Um, it's that kind of groove. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thank you. Um, so let's um, let's move on to the third piece, mm -hmm. um, and this is not getting out. So we'll take a quick listen to that, and then we'll come back. Thank you. 
Yeah, so this was a commission from the Villiers Quartet, who um, a fabulous, fabulous quartet. They're so great to work with. Um, and they were doing a series of what they called um, From Home Commissions, um, inviting British composers to reflect on their um, lockdown experiences, um, their pandemic experiences. So it was a really interesting bunch of people. It was myself, there's Robert Falkins, Alex Ho, um, and Rodman, um, a great bunch of really very different musicians. And um, what was really nice about the whole process is we had um, a bit of to and fro, so it wasn't just a kind of one and done kind of thing, which is very often the case is you write the music, somebody rehearses it, records it, and that's it. But we had this whole kind of forwards and backwards where we, I could go off and tinker with it and, and talk to the quartet and they could really work on getting the, exactly the performance of the music I, I had in my head. Um, so the music is really, I mean, we've heard it, it's, it's very tightly wound. Uh, the music is, is not getting out from, from certain constraints. Um, Harmonically, I mean, without getting too technical for your listeners here, um, harmonically the music is based on very, very close musical intervals like of less than a semitone. So um, there's lots of places where the instruments are playing very, very closely together. And it's kind of obsessively going around these few pitches, which are like the open notes of the string instruments in the quartet. So um, off the top of my head, I think it starts off obsessed with the note G and a very, very close intervals to the note G. So um, just a quarter tone above, um, um, just uh, you know, three quarters of a tone above. Um, and lots and lots of very rapid movement around this. So uh, we don't really hear a harmonic process so much as this um, almost kind of like clustered out of tune movement around single pitches. Um, it's like a kind of written out multiphonic vibrato sort of sound, but with a lot of furious rhythmic drive. So these parts are moving very closely around around this these centers of gravity, but it's kind of rubbing against it like really percussively uh, at the same time. 
And for that, the music moves around to explore some other poles. So it moves around to explore the different pictures of the open strings, and, and we get some, some some more opening up. The music opens up wider, um, but it's always very very tightly controlled. Um, there's some nice symmetrical writing as well, which I'm a big fan of at the moment, where um, there's something central and the parts moving away from the central part, upwards and downwards in pitch at the same time, and then coming back to it. So it's like, um, you know, like a, a salmon leaping above its own reflection or something, or a dolphin, <laughs> you know. The music rises from this fixed point and then comes back down to it. Um, at the same time, something's diving down at the same amount and coming back up. So, you know, it's got this obsessive returning to the same pitches, um, which is kind of like the opposite of the way a lot of music works, which is very um, forward directed. You know, you create some tension and then it re resolves into a new direction, You create, which then creates some new tension and which then resolves into a new direction. So music's always got a sense of forward momentum. But though this piece sounds very, very busy on the surface, it's frantic, it's biting, it's aggressive, it's rhythmically complex. Uh, in terms of what's actually happening in the music, it's completely static. It's stuck. It's running really hard on the spot. It's like a furious vampire hamster in its wheel. <laughs> it's out for blood, but it's not getting anywhere. I think vampire hamsters new for us on this program. <laughs> That's the first one. Yeah, I love this idea. You use the phrase uh, and and like reframe it. Um, uh, a completely controlled written note multiphonic. Um, I, I love that description and I've never like thought of it that way. And there's always like, there, I mean, as, as someone who plays a lot of like aleatoric new music, yeah. you always get tasked with either play a multiphonic on your own time. And there's just a big, you know, red swash against the paper, or yeah. you have somebody who writes a really intense, like um, quarter tones and three quarter tones. And it's very hyper rhythmic but largely to a similar, if not, uh, you know, connected effect. And it's, I've never thought of it that way, though, that you're really almost recreating a extended technique by writing something so completely precise and not extended. Yeah, I think a lot of my music is doing that, actually. I mean, one thing I love to do is to recreate the effect of, of electronic, like pedal effects and, and so on. And, and mix the desk uh, effects and plug-in effects, but doing it live with acoustic instruments. Hmm. So, so I just wrote a, a piece recently for um, Wind Quintet, um, which is all about kind of exploring the effect you get if a flute was being played through a delay pedal, but there is no delay mm. pedal. It's all done with, with the other instruments. So it's like a muted horn and, and clarinet and bassoon and oboe. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah I, I must admit, when I listened to, I mean, uh, when I first heard this piece, which was actually when it was first on YouTube, which was which was fantastic, um, I, I was I couldn't put my finger on what was different about it, and and it was only later when you started talking about microtonalities that that it actually you know made me realise that these changes were so small, you know that 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 you know it, as you say it wasn't harmonic i guess is the, is the word i'm looking for it was kind of these little little changes that were going on and, and that was kind of kind of uh, new to me i guess i mean it's it's somebody who doesn't you know understand microtonality very well it was kind of interesting to to, to, to hear it in practice as it were yeah i mean this it's a difficult subject microtonality to, to some people it just sounds out of tune Mm. Um, but then we, li we listen to music from a lot of other cultures around the world and we would say, well, actually, our kind of Western equal temperament 
probably sounds out of tune to, to them because, you know, yeah. uh, 12 tone equal temperament is not mathematically strictly in tune yet. Anyway, it's an approximation. Um, mm. So, you know, ex I like to explore that crunchiness. Um, and I always I, I think mean, there's a, a whole world in between semitones that we don't have in Western tonal music or we don't acknowledge maybe that there's a lot of space that we are not playing between a C and a C sharp. Like there is actually a lot in there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people love this kind of sound as well. People love blues music mm. um, you know, or it's traditional music of, of Turkey or, or Hindustani yeah. or... Um, you know, what the Carnatic tradition of Northern India, um, you know, it's full of this kind of inflected tonality. It's not oh, just like play any old random note you want, but it is like a way of colouring the notes of the scale. It's an inflection. It's interesting. I was reading a, a something recently about um, oud players. Yeah. And from different parts, and they all have each sort of group in an area has their, their oud tuned to slightly different different you know uh, microtones and all this kind of thing and, and you can recognize which who it, who plays it by the, by the, how they've got their their oud tuned and this kind of thing and it kind of makes you realize there's a lot more to to bach and beethoven if you know what i mean it's kind of like there's a lot more com things out there which we which we just don't hear very often yeah i mean if, if we were to go back in our own musical history like just a hundred years ago or so we, we hadn't agreed like what the pitch of a was for example so you have some great stories about like the, the first touring orchestras. So it was like a Russian orchestra turned up to play in the Albert Hall. And, um, you know, they were playing almost a tone away from, from the, <laughs> the English concert pitch at the time. And I can't remember what they were playing, but the organ came in in the last movement. And, of course, the organ was playing at English concert hall pitch and the Russian orchestra were like almost a tone out. They were playing at Russian pitch. Um, it's just got this awful cataclysmic crash. I think the concert just stopped. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's only really a very recent thing, a sort of standardization of, of tuning. I mean, we read, uh, you know, writers from the 16th, 17th century, writing with different characters of different musical keys. Because, mm. you know, there's a difference between an, an E flat in E flat major and the D sharp of E minor. It's the same note on the keyboard. But mm colors the scale in a completely different way because they were tuned and sung differently people would make a difference between these things we've kind of um you know homogenized it we have we've taken all the fun out of tuning yeah that's interesting but I, there's no perfect solution if you were to try to perfectly tune a piano so like all the fifths are in tune then all the octaves would be out of tune if you mm. tune it so all the octaves are out of tune then all the semitones are an approximation you know there's <laughs> there isn't actually a way to make it so it's Perfectly in tune, it's just as close as we can get it. You, you kind of wonder if Bach came back today and suddenly listened to the piano, whether you'd actually recognize it and think, okay, that's actually right, yeah. or whether that sounds just out of tune to him or something. Yeah, well, it's kind of something which was happening in his day was the invention of equal temperaments. So, you know, his, his father would have probably you know, said, oh, this doesn't sound so great. And his what, children what would have been, doing, yeah. Sarah? What are you doing? Yeah. Terrible. And his children would have been brought up in a world of, of this new equal temperament, but he was this sort of transitional generation in between. That's kind of interesting, yeah. How, how no, no I, I mean, I, the thing that I was amazed about the piece as well is was the musicianship in it. Um, oh, gosh, they're fantastic. so good, aren't they? Mm. Yeah. And, I'm and a big so, fan. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I saw them doing this, and I, I was just couldn't. I was mesmerised by first of all what they were doing and the speed, and and you know, not playing an instrument to any standard. That was just kind of like amazing. But how how difficult is it to play this kind of microtonality music in such a frenetic way? I mean, is it? I mean, I guess they're all coming back to the as you say, it's a very narrow region they're working in but but the differences make a difference if you know what i mean so. they do so um you know, normally when you play violin you have these different you know positions first position second position mm. and, and so on where the, the fingers are coming down like a, a semitone or a tone apart so depending on the scale shape you're making so for a lot of this piece they're actually using a kind of like quarter position or a half position so the fingers are in in, the, in a fixed shape moving to different strings so when you know, once they found it um, they're, they're moving that same that same finger shape, so it's a, it's a kind of a new finger shape for the violinists and the cellists. Um, but they, they're moving that same shape then across the different strings, so it, it does actually fall under the fingers really nicely. Um, right. Okay. Kind of unexpectedly, so you know, once they've played it and they got used to it, it's like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Yeah. Um, it so is very much written do... for you know, you you couldn't play that music on a different set of instruments it wouldn't translate to like um that's, a that's what i was going to ask, I was gonna ask if it, it was somebody else how would it work you know it's yeah, no, it's yeah. it's very much written around the technique of the instruments so it is written as as string quartet music it would be something that would keep me up at night as a clarinetist that if i were looking at that at the speed and and at the ask as we say it would be something i would i would toss and turn over and try and figure out how it would be possible for sure oh gosh it, it just doesn't fall under the fingers on the clarinet at all no <laughs> but on the violin um on the viola on the cello uh, surprisingly it does there's some very great very flashy patterns which is just moving the same finger movement across the four strings so it's just repeating the same finger movements four times going across the four strings. It sounds amazing, but you know it's actually quite straightforward. Oh no, that's that's sort of ruined it now because I thought it was some sort. You know, it's no. The trick is doing the straightforward thing and making it sound good. There, I mean, if sound you look good. at yeah, Mozart's that's, that's music, good. it's all just scales and arpeggios. You know, they're very very simple. Yeah. Everyone has to learn them. Making it sound good though, that's the challenge. That's the difficult challenge. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mozart. I, I, I mean. Uh, my wife plays a bit of piano and and I always used to say you know when you listen to something like Bach which sounds you know that that sounds kind of easy and she goes oh yeah sure <laughs> you know it's it's like it it's it's not terribly difficult but making it sound great is really really tricky you know? oh yeah Bach's it's, it's a huge not... trick really isn't it? it sounds simple it's really hard to play and then most yeah, exactly. the around it sounds yeah, complex exactly. it's actually really easy to play and then uh really hard to actually make it sound good mm-hmm now, now, the thing that I wanted to mention as well, the things that for me brought all these three pieces together, mm -hmm. um, I mean, for me was was this, this, and I guess it's not surprising, the rhythm of all of these pieces. I mean, they, they were all tied in a way by a rhythmical background, if you know what I mean. It's, I do, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so I mean, the, the, it, the common feature, if you like, when I listened to them was that there is this very strong sense of rhythm in the pieces and, and very much for me, we seem to be driven by it. Yeah, rhythm is really kind of central to my practice as a composer, I guess. A lot of my music is dances along, it has a sense of pulsation, um, sense of groove. Um, some of that is to do with rhythm, uh, and some of that is to do with kind of phrase structure, um, repetition. Uh, and some of that is to do with that kind of mysterious sense of groove, which is really about you know, on, on the, you know, most basic levels, but making some notes louder than the others. 
and mm. emphasizing some elements of your rhythmic grid. So, um, yeah, I think that's kind of like something I'm really focused on as a composer is, is thinking about the music happening as a series of points in time. And some of those points in time are more interesting than others. And you want to just push them or pull them or prolong them or cut them short or um, this is the point where the harmony moves or this is the point where the harmony doesn't move. Um, and that's that's where you get a sense of rhythm, a sense of groove. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it is kind of fascinating because, you know, a lot of music um, uh, you get nowadays, or at least I get to hear from people submitting music and, and listening to music of, of modern modern composers is is not is not rhythmical you know not mm. not in the not in the you i mean it, it may have some rhythm that musical rhythm in a sense but yeah. you listen to it and you it's harder to distinguish a rhythm where, whereas your music is very driven by the rhythm which i, I guess for me is kind of like a it, it's a little bit different it sets it apart in mm. from some things i get and i I, I I find that kind of interesting i think well all music has rhythm you know it's just like <laughs> How, how is that rhythm being expressed as part of, of other music? And you're right, for, yeah. for me, my, my rhythmic elements are, are kind of a foreground thing. And I think there is a trend in certain kinds of composition to obscure the, the rhythmic underlay, to not make it clear where any sense of pulsation or beat is. And it's, you know, that's the, the difference, I suppose, between like a, a technical drawing that shows you exactly how the parts fit together and a, a watercolour painting, which does its best to kind of blur and obscure you know there's a lot of composers who are very influenced i guess by impressionist painters <laughs> and they they want that kind of smudging together and lack of clarity of where the pulse falls um, some of this music is, is deliberately so you know the, there is no stated pulse it's, there's lines on the paper where things have got to align and, and then it's kind of up to the players to sort of feel their way through so it's got this sense of sort of floating and timelessness which is you know, very attractive mm. um i quite like the kind of music where you, you, you kind of tap a body part <laughs> <laughs> does, does this actually do you think this reflects your 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 life in a way do you think your music reflects this this sort of rhythmical order i guess maybe that's not the right word but you know what i mean do you think that is a reflection of you just kind of curious oh probably yeah i think i'm a bit of a control freak in many other areas of my life so um you know being in control of the rhythm like that and saying you know it has this particular groove and it's accented here and it's this speed and you know that sense of clarity and order is is kind of like something that i embrace in a lot of areas of my life you should see my bookshelves <laughs> <laughs> Are oh, the record collections in alphabetical order and by by I don't or know by do color. bookshelves in Dewey order? Uh, yeah, let's just sort by color. Yeah. Mm. Oh, okay. Because then it's like, oh, I can't remember who wrote it, but I know it's got an orange spine. <laughs> I, I I've seen it around. By, yeah, I think we tell a lot by looking at each of our book collections and how they were ordered. So it would probably tell us a lot about each other. So. Yeah. Well, Jacob, do you have anything else at the moment? I don't. I think I, I'm just so happy that we were able to uh, have a chance to listen to your music today and, and have a chance to, to hear your thoughts around how you write and what you write and the, the songs that, uh, that we had the chance to listen to today. Um, what uh, What's next for people to listen to? What, what other 
commissions do you have on the go? What other YouTube things can people do? Or hopefully, God willing, live performances at some point. Oh, gosh. Um, what's coming up soon? Um, I'm working on a, a new commission for Skipton Camerata, who's just um, one of Yorkshire's um, wonderful local professional orchestras. Um, something we've been wanting to bring to fruition for about a year, a year now. So very, very exciting piece I'm writing for them. Um, I've got a piece of mine being performed and recorded by the Orchestra of Opera North coming up soon, which is one of their mm-hmm. minute masterpieces they commissioned. Um, I've just completed writing a piece for Fulham Brass Band, which is part of um, Sounds of Music's Adopter Music Creator Programme. So Full and Brass Band have adopted me for the last year or so. Oh, wow. And um, I've been working on a piece with them. Uh, I've got a great, really, really exciting piece that I wrote for um, Rare Scale, which is an ensemble of Carla Reese and Sarah Watts, who play big flute and big clarinets. Um, <laughs> so a great duet uh, every time that they're recording. Um, that's um, in the works, a recording coming out soon. Uh, yeah, loads of little, little things going on. So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.